welcome to the podcast around the corner, the No Efron Podcast. Dear listener, I like to start my podcast to you as if we're already in the middle of a conversation. I pretend that we're the oldest and dearest friends, as opposed to what we actually are, people who met via a podcast streaming platform. Isn't it weird when you realise that someone you've never met is the only someone for you? This month, Dan and I will be discussing the first Nora Ephron cinematic universe pairing of Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks, Sleepless in Seattle. Before we get to the discussion, I'll leave you with a quote from the film. That's your problem. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the podcast Around the Corner, the Nora Ephron podcast. Join us every month as we celebrate the work of writer, filmmaker and queen of romantic comedies, Nora Ephron. I'm Shawnee Mead and I'm joined by my good friend and esteemed co-host, Dan Kalan. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Shawnee. How's it going? It's good. I'm very excited about today's movie. Yes, it occurred to me today that there's like one, two, three, four, like 27 states between you and I on this planet and how appropriate that is that we're recording Sleepless in Seattle today. A very Matt-centric film. (laughs) Two people on very different parts of the planet. Yes. Love that. I'm a little bit further away than just from Baltimore to Seattle. That's true. That's true. <laughs> More time zones and all of that. So I won't just be uh, popping over to the Empire State Building to meet anyone because uh, it will be several days of travel for me to get there. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, this month we will be discussing the 1993 film Sleepless in Seattle, directed by Nora Ephron, written by Nora Ephron, David S. Ward and Jeff Arch, and starring, of course, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. It's only Nora's second film, and here we are at one of her iconic... Yeah, this is like the classic combo. I'm tempted to say that Meg and Tom are more iconic than Meg and Billy. Yeah. As much as we love When Harry Met Sally, and I do do. think it is her best movie, I will say that Tom and Meg, in my mind, are the more iconic screen pair. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, they're so iconic, they're in this movie together for about like two minutes, maybe? Even less? Yeah. All that chemistry, it's just flowing. Yes. Yeah. Everyone talks about how they're only in like one scene, but that's not true technically. You know, they do have two scenes together. Yeah. But it's yes. just a brief hello, you know, an exchange of hellos. And all I could say was hello. There's something in that scene. Mm-hmm. I think that their chemistry in both scenes is excellent. Mm, well, I think so. Well, I was actually going to talk about the script history first, but I think let's just continue on the Megan Tom train. <laughs> Get that important discussion going straight away. Yes, please. So, yeah, since When Harry Met Sally, Meg Ryan was in three films, Joe versus the Volcano, which we'll talk about again in a minute, because it's the first pairing of Meg and Tom. Exciting. Yes, and what an incredible movie that is. Yes, weird and wonderful and delightful. And actually, it was released in cinemas nine days before I was born. So I think I, think <laughs> I was destined... Even though, you know, sometimes in this movie, maybe destiny isn't a thing people believe in. But I feel like I was destined to love Meg and Tom and Nora and all of that because it's my movie. It's my birthday movie. So It's so funny. We, we, have, we have very different birthday movies, Shani. I was born the same week as Robocop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Meg was also in The Doors, which weirdly, every That's time right. I see screenshots of her in that, I think it's Nicole Kidman in Practical Magic because they have exactly the same hair. I forget that she was in The Doors. I only saw it once, relatively recently, and I remember thinking to myself, is that that Meg Ryan? (laughs) And she also made Prelude to a Kiss in 1992, so she had a movie every year since When Harry Met Sally. 
Meg was booked and busy. Yeah. She was America's sweetheart, sort of girl next door kind of thing. Even though she absolutely hated that title. Yeah. Whatever she could to get away from it later on because she didn't want to be everyone's favorite sweetheart girl. But because of this movie, that moniker stuck for a while. Yeah. And welcome Tom Hanks to the podcast because we haven't discussed him before. But here he is. Let's uh, give him a round for Tom. Yeah. So he also had been extremely busy. Every year he had several movies coming out. He'd made Splash, Bachelor Party. He'd been in a couple of films with Carrie Fisher, and The Man with One Red Shoe, and The Burbs. He'd been in Big, Penny Marshall, yep. Represent, Dragnet, The Money Pit, Turner and Hooch, Joe vs. the Volcano, and then the year before this, A League of Their Own, Penny Marshall again. Yep. And also two other people from A League of Their Own are also in Sleepless. That's right. Rosie O'Donnell and Bill Pullman are in this as well. Yeah, so Joe vs. the Volcano, they're paired three times in that film because Meg is three different characters. That's right. That just shows how good their chemistry is. It really showcased Meg's versatility as an actor. Yeah. And because that movie was not a success at the box office, I feel like that's what sort of pigeonholed her into these roles. I mean, she may have done these movies anyway. Mm. I think anybody who worked with Nora really liked working with Nora. And I think she would have probably done Sleepless and she would have done You've Got Mail regardless. Mm. But, you know, I think that if Joe versus the Volcano had been more of a success, I think that she could have been seen as more than that America's Sweetheart character. Yeah, because she's so amazing in that. Angelica, the middle character in that, is completely not a Meg The Flippity Jibber. The Flippity As a society, we do not talk about the three Megs in Joe vs. Volcano enough. No, we really don't. And I'm happy that we're reopening that conversation here today. Yes, but continuing to speak of Joe vs. the Volcano, Nora and John Patrick Shanley knew each other, and Nora was on the set quite a lot, watching the movie unfolding, and apparently... That's where she fell in love with Meg and Tom. She got the magic of the pairing straight away. In Aaron's book, he was saying she got sort of a crush on Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan together. She just couldn't get over how terrific they seemed as a couple. And I think that was part of her inspiration for casting them when she made her films. So thank you, Jovis Volcano, for inspiring Nora to give us the amazing pairing that we get in this movie. And then we get again in You've Got Mail. I'm waiting for the third movie. Like, I'm waiting for it to come oh. back around. I mean, of course, it won't be Nora, but I would love to see Meg and Tom back together. Yes. That would be such a fun thing to go see. I would be there opening day or opening weekend for sure. Well, that is a conversation that friend of the show, Aaron Carlson, and I often have, that we're trying to manifest <laughs> the third straight-up rom-com, but we're trying to manifest that Delia Efron writes the script because Delia was so instrumental in the script for this and you've got mail, so we're putting that out into the world. We're going to manifest this, Shani. I hope it happens. I think it's going to. I mean, Meg's directing another film. Maybe put that out there as well. Maybe written by Delia Efron, directed by Meg Ryan with Meg and Tom. It's coming together in my mind. I think it's inevitable that we're going to get our, like, on Golden Pond, but it'll be Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan as, like, senior citizens falling in love all over again. (laughs) That's the movie I want to go see. They're not quite old enough for that yet. Let me just be clear about that. But still, like, that's what we get Mm. eventually. Like, I'll I'll that for sure. It's going to happen. But yeah, so for this movie, casting Meg and Tom, I think Nora had always had them in her mind after seeing Joe vs. Volcano and I think she wasn't quite sure if Tom Hanks would be kind of Cary Grant-ish enough 
because of this movie's links to An Affair to Remember. She did want them, but the studio wanted Dennis Quaid for a while. His production company had a deal with TriStar, who made this film. They sent him the script because they wanted him in the movie, but then they wanted Kim Bessinger as Annie. The studio was trying to package, you know, the two of them with this movie. Interesting. Julia Roberts was approached. She was interested, but then she changed her mind. She felt she was a bit sort of young for the role. But one of the last things she did was before she said no, she said, I would absolutely love Nora to direct this because even though Nora wrote one of the drafts of the film, yep. it was up for debate whether Nora would be allowed to direct this movie. I think they were thinking of Gary Marshall for a bit. Sure, I could see that. But Julia Roberts, like Meg, was very uber power star at the time. So her going, I really want Nora to direct this That was kind of a big deal. So then that made people go, okay, if Julia Roberts wants Nora, then there was someone else, some other producer that was trying to like steal the movie. But then he sent it to Tom Hanks and he was interested. And then Nora wanted Meg because they were already friends and she really just wanted her for this part. And then, yeah, Tom Hanks was in the mix. So like with When Harry Met Sally, lots of people thrown around, lots of names, lots of people in the mix. But yeah, I think once again, the perfect people were chosen. I think almost all of Nora's productions up to this point have had tumultuous pre-production. And the fact that we come back on the other side of these, watching the finished film, and we talk about how perfectly cast Mm. all of these movies are. Even the movies that were like, movies a little bit strange, but the casting is great. Yeah. And I would argue that for all eight, the casting has been pretty spectacular. And that is a rare thing for a filmmaker to have that kind of a track record. Yeah. You know, the movies we have coming up also have great casts. So it's not like it's just these first eight. It's going to continue. I don't know how much of that was Nora or if she just hired really good casting directors. I know she knew what she wanted. It shows in the casting. The, The chemistry that we see on screen, even from the supporting cast, always is very, very strong. Yeah, well, I think once all the movies get past the backwards and forwards, argy-bargy of who's directing, who's doing this, I think once it got to the point that Nora was in charge, she really oversaw every part of everything. So, I mean, a lot of the casting also was because of her, because it was people she knew and people that she built relationships with, like the fact that Rob Reiner is in this film, and he'll come back again in Mixed Nuts. Nora collected these amazing actors around her and they all wanted to follow her and come with her to other projects. People just really loved working with her. Like once they got what working with her was like, because there are a couple of other people that didn't follow her for stuff. And we'll talk about that, another production designer issue in this film. Once again, she kept asking for a specific thing. He wouldn't do it. And then that was the problem. So just do it. Just do what she says. (sighs) Damn production designers. Damn production designer, guys. (laughs) Yeah, so the script writing process wasn't really tumultuous. It just was a long-ish period with quite a lot of people involved. So the original draft of the script was written by a guy called Jeff Arch, who lived in LA, had worked as a lighting designer and assistant to the cinematographer of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He was also a martial arts instructor, but he was really keen on becoming a screenwriter. So he wrote the original draft. Apparently in the original draft, Sam Baldwin was called Tom Baldwin, but I understand why that was changed because I doubt Tom Hanks would want to play a Tom in a movie because (laughs) in his version it was Sam calling the radio show not Jonah because he felt that Jonah needed a mother interesting then producer Gary Foster found the script he really loved it but 
I think he knew it needed a bit of work. Then he and Jeff worked together to improve it a bit more. Then, because he'd never written a screenplay before, trying to get the script considered was a bit of a process. But then the script then went to David S. Ward. He'd written The Sting. Right, great movie. Oscar for that. Yeah, so then he rewrote the script. He changed things like the fact that it was Jonah calling the radio station instead. He changed the relationship between Sam and Jonah. I think in the original one, it was quite sort of intense. And Sam was kind of this really like sad, maudlin kind of guy. And they went, yeah, that's not going to work for a rom-com. We need to kind of lighten that up a bit, change their dynamic. But then Nora was brought in to do another rewrite. So then she wrote another draft of the script. She made quite a lot of changes. And she added a lot of the Affair to Remember links, but that was her favourite movie. And actually, she'd been to the premiere of An Affair to Remember with Phoebe, and she met Cary Grant. Amazing story. Yeah, I read about that. Yeah, that was in Kristen's book. But yeah, she was always a big fan of An Affair to Remember. So I think she brought a lot more of that in. And then because she always trusted Delia so much to oversee things, bring in different ideas that maybe she didn't have, she then brought Delia on and they did another rewrite. So eventually the script was written four times, but each time there were layers, people were bringing different things. Technically Delia was actually a screenwriter for this, but because of Writers Guild rules, she was talking about it in her book, that when there's more than one person writing it, you get credited if you made big structural changes to the script. So the original guy got credited, the second guy he got credited, and then Nora got credited, but then they deemed that the things Delia added weren't major structural changes, so Delia didn't get a mention. She said she anticipated that she was upset, and then Nora was upset about it, but then Nora gave her a cut of her profits from the film. So When we spoke to Erin, she mentioned the dynamic of Nora and Delia as co-writers, and how Nora wrote a lot of the dry comedy like the the comedic line whereas Delia wrote more of the romantic sort of lovey-dovey dialogue and certainly doesn't justify not crediting Delia for her work here but I would suspect that the reason she didn't get a credit is because a lot of her contributions to this script were dialogue not story structure yeah and I think that's what she thought because she brought a lot of Jessica's acronyms for everything like the H and G high goodbye and you're only Y-O-H you're only hope MFEO made for each other like all of Jessica's fun annoying things because I think if I was someone's parent and Jessica was the friend they brought around I think I'd be a little bit confronted by parts of Jessica but uh (laughs) but you know it's very fun to watch Nora loved I think Jessica was her favorite character she ever wrote Jessica wasn't in the original script so Jessica was added but I think she wrote Jessica in a way that she was kind of mini Nora (laughs) she's an incredible child yes I love Jessica Delia was a stepmother as well. So she'd gone through that dynamic of meeting kids and becoming a stepmother and all of that process. So she added a lot of the Jonah-Victoria dynamic of how Jonah's kind of, you know, he seems like he's being very polite, but actually he hates Victoria. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not that Delia's stepchildren hated her, but I mean, she understood that delicate kind of balance of, you know, watching families together. Jonah's dialogue with Victoria... Like, if you just read it on the page, you could read it any number of ways. I mean, it could be read in a very 
very sweet, genuine way. And so much of that comes down to, uh, what's his name? Ross Mellinger. So much of it comes down to Ross Mellinger's performance. What a great child actor. Mm. He's spitting so much venom while also saying something that is otherwise innocuous. Thanks. I never saw potatoes cooked that way. Might relate. They're the worst potatoes (laughs) I've ever had. (laughs) Yeah. The contempt. Yes. I can cut it with a knife. But yeah, what we know of Delia and Nora's collaboration, they're definitely both present here. Mm-hmm. And I think we can both agree that they should have both been credited. But, you know, Writers Guild rules being what they are, there's not a whole lot they could do, I, I imagine. Yeah. And then this was also nominated for a Best Screenplay Oscar as well. Is this her third Academy Award nominated screenplay? Yes, because it was Silkwood and When Harry Met Sally and then this one. So That's awesome. And it would have been awesome if she one one but you know true we won't wait into opinions on past oscars because we could be talking about that forever yeah so just because we have a lot of production history to get into and a lot of scenes that we want to talk about we're going to talk about the other cast very briefly not doing filmographies this time but we have so much to get to (laughs) yeah like i said before we've got some returning people rob reiner is in this as jay sam's associate Gabby Hoffman is back as Jessica. She's back again from This Is My Life. That's a two Nora Ephron movie run. I think that what Gabby Hoffman brings to that character is incredible. Her presence here is so much fun and so iconic. And then also we've got a whole lot of new people. We've got Bill Pullman as Walter. How charming is Bill Pullman? Always. We'll discuss Justice for Walter a bit later. Yeah, well, as we've said, Ross Mellinger as Jonah and Rosie O'Donnell as Annie's best friend, Becky, who is a lot of fun in this. Yes, always. Yeah, and then Rita Wilson as Susie, who apparently is Sam's sister, but I had never really thought about that before, how Susie was involved. I read that as well. I always thought that Susie and Greg were his friends. Yeah, I did as well. But then I've been doing extra research and everyone's going, Sam's sister. And I was like, okay, that's news to me. Because I don't ever remember anyone explicitly saying that in the film. But obviously everyone else just picked that up. But I've missed that part of it. It might be one in one of those details that's explained in the script that's not yeah. explained through dialogue. But I don't think it matters. You know, like yeah, it doesn't matter. Greg and Susie could just as easily be a couple friends that Sam and his wife Maggie had been friends with you know and now that maggie's gone he doesn't stop being friends with greg and Susie. but yeah if the dynamic is that Susie is his sister it doesn't matter it doesn't change the scenes yeah and then we've got victor garba as greg Susie's husband how perfect are they as a movie couple i love them well i mean greg sometimes is a bit of a dick he is but like in nora romantic comedy man way Nora knew how to write male characters who were kind of dicks, but not uncharming. You know, like Harry is a dick for most of when (laughs) Harry met Sally, but we still love him. I think Greg, he may be a dick, but I still find him to be fun and charming and probably somebody I would be friends with. And then also in quite a very small role, he's only in it for a couple of scenes, but David Hyde Pierce is in it as Dennis, Annie's brother. Well, he just seems very Niles from Frasier. Yes, he does. Maybe even more neurotic, if that's possible. Yeah, and also Barbara Garrick 
is Victoria. You know, Victoria is very memorable. <laughs> She's so good. But I do remember reading in Erin's book that apparently Barbara Garrett, later when she watched the film, she went, I really like Victoria. Like, she doesn't seem like a bad character. Barbara Garrick plays it really well. I think her performance is outstanding here. It accomplishes what I believe Nora set out to accomplish with that character, for good or ill. Whether she was in on the joke or not, I think that it's a shame that she may not have been. Her performance here is really fun. Yeah. I mean, it's cringy a lot and (laughs) it's annoying, but like... She needed to be like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. She was totally the wrong choice for Sam and because she wasn't Annie. The thing that's interesting about... I don't think this is just true of this movie. I think it's a Nora thing. Victoria and Walter are like the other people in our main characters' lives. Mm -hmm. And what's awesome is that... Nora does this in When Harry Met Sally as well. They are not awful people. And then you've got male. And then you've got male, yes. Other movies try and make it like the other person is a terrible person and we're meant to hate them. But Nora always just wrote it in a way that they weren't the wrong person. They were just the wrong person for this particular character. But there's actually nothing wrong with them. Yes, they are the right person for somebody else. We don't hate Walter. We don't hate Victoria. We're not meant to hate them. They're both lovely people. Yeah. It's so difficult, I think, for a writer to write a character like that, that is the wrong character, because the instinct, I think, is to make them unlikable. Yeah. Victoria and Walter are not unlikable. No. I do love that, that there's no real villain here. I love that these movies, Nora's whole vibe is a malice-free romantic comedy experience. Yeah, yeah. And just to finish out, Parker Posey actually had a very small role in the film. There was actually a scene that she was in that was cut, unfortunately. Oh, no way. I'll share a link to it when this episode comes out. But yeah, she and two other friends, they just rock up at the boathouse one night. And I think she's being a bit like flirty. I think it was just like a little scene that they threw in that was fun. But Yeah, I could see that not working. Yeah. It didn't really do anything. And like we talked about before, Nora would try something if it didn't work. She didn't just hang on to stuff just because they did it. But she really loved Parker Posey and then later sent her a letter going, I'm so sorry this bit was cut. She went, it was nothing to do with you. It was just like the runtime. It just didn't fit. But she went, I'm really sorry. And then she cast her in You've Got Mail as sort of like an apology. In one of the best roles in that movie. Yeah. Parker Posey was very upset at the time, but she definitely was rewarded for that later on because she's an excellent character, which we will talk a lot about when we get to You've Got Mail. Absolutely. But yeah, so that's the cast. I feel like most people will be very familiar with the plot of this film, but I'll just do a quick summary. Well, we open with Sam and Jonah. Sam has just lost his wife and Jonah's just lost his mom. They live in Chicago. They just really need something different. So they move to Seattle. Then cut to 18 months later at Christmas. Christmas watch. This movie wastes no time getting to Christmas. So on Christmas Eve, Annie is at her family's house with her fiancé, Walter. Then her and Walter are driving separately to his family's house. She stumbles upon a call-in psychiatrist show with Dr. Marsha Fieldstone voiced by Caroline Aaron, who we've talked about before. She was in This Is My Life. She's been in a couple of other Nora-related films. But yeah, then we cut to Jonah calling into the call-in radio station, talking about that he thinks his dad is really sad. So then he ends up getting sort of in trouble because then Sam ends up on the phone. He goes, like, mm, this is fun and helpful. So he talks about what he loved about his wife and that he feels like he probably won't find anyone else and talks about the fact that you know, it was magic. And then Annie and all these other women around the country 
sort of fall in love with Sleepless in Seattle, as he's dubbed, because you know they'll have names on the radio. Annie falls in love with this idea of this man with his voice. And then, yeah, all these women write to him. Annie eventually writes to him. And then, long story short, we'll get into all the rest of it. But yes, it culminates in a very, an affair to remember, inspired moment where they meet at the end on the top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Cue music. It's that funny thing, like we spoke about with Aaron. I feel like this is kind of Tom Hanks's movie because yeah. even though we're seeing a lot of it through Annie's eyes, I think because he doesn't know about her, but through Annie, we're finding out a lot about him. We're seeing him a journal yes. all the time. And I mean, the fact that he's on the radio, that starts the whole thing. And then in the reverse, you've got Mail. It's very much Meg's movie. So it balances. Yeah, it balances. Yeah, I think because we have so much to talk about, let's just leap into favourite scenes and then I'll incorporate production history as we go. So, Dan, do you want to kick things off with a scene? I've got a favourite scene, but I think one of the things that I like most about this movie is, I mean, I've talked about this before, certainly in our little introductory episode, Mm -hmm. that Sleepless in Seattle was the movie that sort of changed my whole perspective on romantic comedies. Uh, I saw it when I was in my late teens, early 20s. And I just fell in love with it. And for a long time, that was my favorite romantic comedy until I saw When Harry Met Sally. And then I realized that Nora Ephron was the person in charge. She was like holding the strings here of my whole life as a fan of romantic comedies. So the thing that I really love about this movie and why I continue to love it as I get older is that it really plays with this idea of what the romantic comedy has done to us as a society Mm. and our expectations about what true love is or should be. And I think the perfect choice here was to make Sam and Annie sort of disillusioned to that. Like they're surrounded Mm. by people who buy into this idea of like romantic comedy love, right? Yeah. And, you know, we learn very early that Annie doesn't believe in signs. And Sam has a very pragmatic view of the world. And he says, you know, this doesn't happen more than once in your life when you find that perfect person. And then later on, he's having a conversation with Jonah about how, like, when you're dating, you know, there is no such thing as a perfect match. You know, you kind of have to... Trying people on and the process. Yes. And so I love that they are these two characters with very realistic outlooks on their romantic Mm. lives. While everybody else is like, oh, this is like in that movie. Yeah. Then they want the magic storybook fairy tale romance to happen. And so the fact that this movie does play out like that for these two characters who really don't believe in that sort of thing is what makes it so brilliant. Yeah, definitely. It earns that unrealistic fairy tale ending because it has done so much up to that point to sort of stay in that groove, right? Like we talk all the time about how Nora's characters are so realistic and like we see ourselves in these characters. Mm. I think it's very easy to see myself as a Sam. And I imagine for a lot of women, it's easy to see themselves as an Annie. I don't want to say cheesy, but, you know, it is in a way that ending, you know, like that doesn't really happen to people, but for them it Mm. did. And that makes me believe that it could be possible for me in some way. I love that choice that Nora made in writing this movie to have these characters be so practical and create this fantastical story around them. Yeah. Yeah. I love that as well. An Affair to Remember was one of Nora's like all time favorite movies. When she first saw it as a kid, she cried. I think she'd cry every time she saw it. She just really loved the way the movie came together, that it had this big magical 
over-the-top ending that probably wouldn't happen in real life. But I think in writing this, she wanted to make a movie that's created that feeling that she felt when watching An Affair to Remember. She wanted people to come away going, maybe that kind of love could be possible. Both the ending of this and An Affair to Remember, they end on like this really amazing, happy note, but they're still left kind of open because you sort of go after this very minute, what's going to happen? Because there's a lot up right. there. It's, they've just met. Annie still lives in Baltimore. Sam still lives in Seattle. They have a life. He has a kid. Annie has an amazing job and her life. And you really buy into the magic of it all and go, they were perfect for each other and now they're together. But I think they also end in that way because then you get to just end on the magic. You don't have to think about the real world stuff. Yeah. Maybe people don't have to deal with that. It'll all work out because they're in love and they found each other. And and I feel like, especially today, when everyone's always talking about parasocial relationships and the (laughs) social media that people sort of feel like, they genuinely know celebrities and this kind of has that element like Annie just falls in love with a voice on a radio talking for like a couple of minutes and she then throws her whole life into chaos just for the dream of meeting this man they are right for each other but it's kind of almost like based on what because really she falls in love with an idea he sees her and thinks she's beautiful doesn't know who she is and then later they meet and it's this magic Really, it's just based on magic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It earns that ending of just going, you know what? It's just magic. We don't need to explain that. And we're getting away with that because we've worked up to this point. Right. There's a magical quality there Mm. that we just accept as the audience. Because one of the things that Nora did really well, and this is like maybe her best example of it, with You've Got Mail being a, a close second, but she takes a premise that on its face is insane. Annie falls in love with this guy, this voice she hears on the radio, and upends her life to find out who this man is. She hires a private detective to (laughs) photograph him while he is on a date. And then she flies to Seattle. She does for work because she's a journalist. She's just doing her due diligence. This is psycho behavior. I don't think it's psycho. She's doing what she should be doing as a journalist. She's just covering all the bases. In any other movie, this would be crazy behavior. But the way Nora handles it, like, yes, this is Tom's movie, but I think that the way Nora gets away with it here is that she does spend so much time with Annie. So we as the audience can understand what Annie's motives are. We understand what her personal life is like. And Mm -hmm. we know that she is not crazy yes she's doing something that's a little bit crazy right like she's getting ready to marry this man she's with yeah and just because she heard a guy on the radio she's willing to throw all that away to meet this man on the other side of the country but we understand that her motives are pure and that she just feels compelled to at least meet sam yeah because it's nora she finds a way to take this premise and make it endearing and i think that that's incredible I love her ability to do that. We're going to talk more about that when we get to You've Got Mail because I've got a whole laundry list of things to say about that. But that's why we spend so much time with Meg because we need to understand who she is as a character and that she's not Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. She is a sweet, kind, caring person. And so... Yeah, Annie falls in love with Sam or the idea of him. I think it also makes her start to realize that she's just gone along accepting that her and Walter were in love. But I think it made her realize that maybe he's not what I'm looking for. And we've just been going along status quo. But maybe I I didn't believe in destiny because I hadn't found it yet. Then her mother talking about signs, magic. And she's like, I don't really get what you're talking about. So I think she then starts to go, 
but shouldn't I feel that magic and that spark with the person I'm going to be with? And then she hears Sam talking about it on the radio that same evening. And then she's like, I get it. Like the way he's talking about Maggie. Well, it was a million tiny little things that when you added them all up, they meant we were supposed to be together. And I knew it. I knew it the very first time I touched her. It was like coming home. Only to know home I'd ever known. I was just taking her hand to help her out of her car. And I knew it was like magic. God, that line. And then Annie says magic at the same time. And then she finally goes, I get it. That's what I want. Yeah. Maybe it won't work out with Sam, but actually I'm feeling that magic about him. She keeps saying to Becky, I feel like this is crazy, but I also feel like I need to meet him. Like I need to know. Yeah. I don't want to regret that I didn't. And maybe he is the one for me. But I think even if they don't stay together, Sam's realized that there could be a second person out there for him. And Annie realizes that she knows what she wants now. And she wants the magic and she wants more of a spark and a connection, not just two people that are more like companions. I had never considered that they wouldn't end up together and live happily ever after. I definitely think they will live happily ever after. I definitely would. I hope in my little heart. But yeah. Yeah, I love that Nora allows us Hmm. to fill in that blank. If we choose to believe that they don't work out, I think it plays out exactly as you described. Hmm. Like Nora's not pandering to us, right? She's letting us choose the ending we want. Yeah, they finally meet, but the story's not over. And I think both outcomes are perfectly valid. Yeah. And even when she's talking to Becky going, I'm here in Seattle, like, is this crazy? And then Becky's like, no. And that's actually the weirdest thing about it. Yeah. I thought you were a nut before, but actually I get it. I get what you're doing. Like, and it makes sense to me. Becky recognizes that Walter's not the best choice for Annie. Becky clearly thinks he's boring. Oh, man, I love when she's trying to justify, like, you know, some women just want a relationship full of surprises, but not me. You know, like, I, I don't like surprises. And Walter's like, oh. <laughs> like, what a thought thing you to liked say that. Now you're pretty much saying that I'm boring. Uh... Yeah, and I really just love with the phone call at the beginning that we see the dynamic between Jonah and Sam. Mm-hmm. They're very close. They're going through a lot of stuff together, but it's brought them closer. Also, they have a jokey parent-child relationship. Sam and Jonah are the core of this movie for me, their relationship. The thing that I love most about Ross Malinger's performance here, Mm. because it's it's really him. I mean, we know what Tom Hanks is capable of, but child actors can go either way. I love that the dynamic between these two characters is not always traditional father-son. They speak to each other specifically during their argument Mm -hmm. as if they are peers. When Sam tells Jonah to shut up and Jonah comes stomping back and they have it out the way I have never seen a grown man and an eight-year-old boy have it out. Yeah, I think Sam says Jonah gets more angry and then he goes, shut up. And he's like, mom never told me to shut up. Mom never yelled at me. Which I know in the original writing, they had a different dynamic. Sam went, I won't go away because you're upset about me going away with Victoria. But I know throughout the whole process, Tom Hanks has admitted that at the time he was in his, I want to be serious. I want to be manly and whatever. I don't want to work with children, animals. You know, he's admitted that he was an uber grump back then. Yeah, he was getting a lot of movies and he was just about to win two back-to-back Oscars. So I know that he was not eager to be upstaged by a child. Yeah, he was like, "Mm, I'm reading the script. I feel like Jonah gets better lines than Sam. And he was like, I want to be manly. I don't want to be like a rom-com guy. When he and Nora first met, 
think it was a little bit of a tenuous relationship because he was like, I want this from the role. And she was like, well, I want this from the role. And he was like, well, I'm Mr. Serious. He'd just done a league of their own. And his character sure. in that is full on grumpy Hanks. And I feel like there's a lot of that character in Sam. Sure. He's a grump. He's angry sometimes. He's a bit rude sometimes. But Tom Hanks went, I feel like Sam's underwritten. You know, they worked it out. They had a really good working relationship going forward. But I think Tom was quite demanding of what he wanted Sam to be. So I think Sam was a very sort of Tom Hanks creation by the end because he was just pouring all of what he wanted into it. Which I think it works well because they are a parent-child. But yeah, they do have that single parent, only child thing that sometimes it feels like you're kind of equal peers almost and you can talk about things. Or roommates. Yeah. Yeah. Sam, even though he's a bit grumpy with him sometimes and pulls the like dad card, he does actually respect Jonah as a person, not just... And maybe sometimes he discusses things with Jonah more like Jonah's an adult because Jonah <laughs> is an only child. He's a bit more mature than other kids. Yeah. It's always just him. And he's just lost his mom. He's gone through a lot. You know, Jonah is actually quite mature for an eight-year-old. <laughs> I love Jonah asking his dad if whoever ends up being his new mom, like <laughs> yeah. if they're going to have sex. And he's like, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't like stop and process that. He just mm -hmm. answers like, well, yeah, I certainly hope so. And he's like, will they scratch up your back? And he's like, what? And he's like, you know, in movies yeah. when, you know, people are having sex and like, they scratch your back up and scream and stuff. And he's like, how do you know all of this? Jed's got cable. <laughs> it's not until after that he remembers, oh, this is an eight-year-old child. Yeah. Where are you learning this stuff? Which happens at least twice in the movie. Just like, hang on a second. How old are you? You know, just. And I love how that ends. And then he realizes. So then Jonah hands him the towel and then he shoves the towel in his face to do like a silly thing being like, what is this conversation that we've just had? That was more like a conversation he might have with Rob Reiner. Yes. But yeah, Jonah was originally played by Nathan Watt in the audition. They thought he would be a good Jonah, but then he and Tom Hanks just didn't, they didn't fit. Then he really struggled to learn dialogue and Nora was very specific about dialogue. Sure. He was probably a bit quieter than what they needed. So Nora had to fire him. Tom Hanks went, you know, that was amazing and brave. Yeah. Everyone respected her for making that hard decision rather than just going we're going to just keep on because we've got this kid and we have to keep him that she actually just for the sake of the movie when it's not working and he has to go so then he went sorry Nathan what but I'm not sure what happened to you in the end but then they cast Ross Mellinger and then that was just perfect then Tom went mm, always had like an aversion to working with children but actually they really just got on outside of filming as well. I can't picture anyone other than the two of them because their dynamic is just so perfect and so believable. Okay, what's another scene that you would like to talk about? Okay, so uh, my favorite scene in this movie, I guess it sort of relates to how Sam and Annie are like these pragmatic, realistic characters. But the scene I have the most fun watching, I think outside of sam and jonah's argument is the scene where greg and Susie come to visit him in seattle yes and they're like having dinner and Susie hears the story about how jonah called the radio show yeah. and put sam on the air and now they're getting all these letters from women all over the country and one lady wants to meet on the top of the empire state building on valentine's day <laughs> and Susie's like it's like that movie Where's a Debraka? <laughs> she recites the entire like ending to the movie. Mm. She's in tears. <laughs> I love that that I know that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson are married in real life, and they were they were married by this point. 
Yeah. So it's like just really fun watching them do this scene together. She's going on about how sappy this movie is, how beautiful it is. Mm. She's crying. And then Tom Hanks immediately makes fun of her yeah. by talking about how like they would cry watching The Dirty Dozen. I'm trying to this goes over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it sort of is a fun little companion scene to When Harry Met Sally in my mind, because both are about the differences between men and women. And so I love that like the women in this movie love an affair to remember and like men never, never understand this movie. And then you get the men making fun of that by talking about the Dirty Dozen. I don't know. I love that interplay there in that scene specifically because like both sides are really fun to watch. Uh, Victor Garber, his deadpan delivery through that scene and the whole stop it, stop it kills me. Yeah, that's my favorite scene in the whole movie. Yeah, and as I was saying before, Nora was very specific about how the way people said lines. But for this scene, Rita Wilson went, do you mind if I kind of try something at the end? And I feel like Nora was okay with it because she wasn't altering dialogue. She was adding something. She added the bit. He just looks at her and they just know and then they hug and like bit because she was saying that, you know, often when you're describing a movie to a friend, you go into more detail than perhaps they want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nora loved that. She let Rita Wilson keep that bit, but it was Nora's idea for her to put the napkin over her legs and go, and then she's just like on the couch with this shriveled little leg. (laughs) Yeah, put a napkin like you're putting a little blanket on your shriveled leg. And then Nora wasn't really into improv, but then because of Rita Wilson's extra bit and the fact she got so into it, the scene just kept going. And then Tom Hanks and Victor Garba improved that whole Dirty Dozen thing, which then Nora was happy to keep because it just happens naturally, organically in the moment. It does show that when everyone's always like, men never get this movie. And it's like, I know. And then the fact that later Jessica's watching An Affair to Remember. And then she's like, this is the most beautiful movie. And then Jonah's like, Ugh, whatever. Yeah, literally every woman in that movie who has seen An Affair to Remember loves that movie. Yeah. And every guy in that movie could not give a shit about Yeah, and then that Sam's movie. like, oh, that's a chick's movie. I will say for the record right here and now, I love An Affair to Remember. Yeah. I get it. I love it. It's a beautiful movie. And for being an old romantic comedy that this movie is inspired by and, you know, should in theory uh, succumb to a lot of the tropes of the romantic comedy, I find it to be kind of not that way. You know, like, I feel like the fact that they don't meet on the Empire State Building is a very realistic scenario. Mm. You know, like, he's there waiting all day. She never shows up. Now, the, Mm. the car accident is dramatic. But I think it's more realistic that they don't meet and then they have to go find each other months later Mm. as opposed to like having that grand finale climax right at the end. They meet on the Empire State Building, kiss and live happily ever. It doesn't happen that way. It's messy. And so I find that for being an older romantic comedy, it is much more subversive than it gets credit for, specifically in this movie, you know, Mm. but I think that's the perception. I think Nora's relaying public perception of these old movies. The guys don't get it, but the women love it. But if you watch it today, I I swear to God, this movie is beautiful and definitely check it out. Yes, I love an affair to remember. And I always cry. With her shriveled little legs. <laughs> I was just here, Rita Wilson. When I see her shriveled little legs, I'm like, ah! Oh! And they just know, and they hug, and, and he's bitter, and he doesn't know why. And that scene is perfect. Rita Wilson just pours everything into that. Yeah, you know, I'm crying too. And I think <laughs> yeah. that's why I love this scene so much, is that I get both sides. I understand Rita Wilson, and I understand the guys crying over the Dirty Dozen. 
it's okay, I'm a crier. (laughs) (laughs) I do love that scene. And also, speaking of an affair to remember, one of my favorite scenes is when Annie and Becky, they're watching an affair to remember and Annie's writing her letter to Sam and she's doing the Dear Sleepless and Son, I've never written one of these before. Becky's (laughs) like, yeah, that's what everyone will say at the beginning of their letter. (laughs) That and how she is watching it and then... Becky's not on board with it. She's on board with it later, but then she's kind of like, oh, what is this? So she's just watching the movie, and then I just love the whole exchange that Annie goes. Now, those were the days when people knew how to be in love. And Becky goes, you're a basket case. They knew it. Time, (laughs) distance, nothing could separate them because they knew. It was right. It was real. It was a movie. That's your problem. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. I love that because, yeah, like we've talked about, everyone wants to be in love in a movie way because it's much more romantic and everything than being in love in real life. The magic of movie love. Everyone wants that. (laughs) That might be the thesis stated in the movie, you know, like Mm. the central thesis right there spoken by Rosie O'Donnell. You don't want to be in love. You want to be in love in a movie. Yes. And that is what everybody else in this movie wants too. True for the audience too. I want to be in love in a movie, you know? Yeah, I think so. And yeah, and then that she adds, because she's watching that bit in the movie, she adds, and go, we'll meet on the top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. Like, because then Becky's just playing along. She's like, oh, this is actually kind of fun. (laughs) Annie and Becky have just this really great friend chemistry. Rosie O'Donnell in this is one of the great rom-com best friend characters. You know, like with Carrie Fisher and When Harry Met Sally, she just brings so much to the part. And it does feel like, even though we only know Becky in context of Annie, Becky feels like a realized person. We hear a lot about her and Rick and the tree man. I think that bit that she's talking about, she ended up meeting Rick because she got divorced because of the tree man. I think that whole bit, that speech was much longer. I think it was two pages originally. She really struggled to memorize all the dialogue. Nora was getting annoyed because she wanted everything to be perfect and specific and I want it how I want it. But she struggled so much that unbeknownst to Nora, one of the crew guys taped the script page to his leg out of shot of Nora so then Rosie could read it and then Nora was like that was perfect you did it so apparently Nora never knew that uh (laughs) was actually reading the lines off of some guy's leg (laughs) uh classic they just work so well together in an interview I read Rosie O'Donnell was saying that straight away just her and Meg they just clicked and she went the reason America fell in love with her was the same reason I fell in love with her she's easy to love and she went she's just so interested in other people and she's smart and funny and which you can really see that coming across in their relationship like they actually just seem like real legit friends that don't just exist for the purposes of this movie which I think is always a hallmark of Nora characters that you really just feel like you're just stepping into this real world that you know these people do know each other and they have been friends forever and Mm -hmm. they're just getting a little slice of this very full life that's already going on. But yeah, I just really, I love that scene. That's a good one. I love them quoting the movie out loud to each yeah. other. Just winter, winter must be must cold, cold for people with no warm memories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I do really love in this movie. I've said before that often lines of dialogue that were very true to Nora and that she felt work she'd use in several movies. But I actually like in this movie that things are reused within the film. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that they talk about men never get this movie, men are going, that's a chick's movie, and then Jessica loves the movie and Jonah doesn't. I love early on that when Annie stops in at that diner and they're all listening to Sleepers in Seattle, that one of the waitresses goes, I bet he's tall with a cute butt. That's hilarious later on because then Jay and Sam are talking about it and he's going, I'm trying to tell you, that's what women want, pecs and a cute butt. 
And Sam's like, what? And he's like, I don't know, but every woman, she just wants pecs and a cute butt. What, like he has the cutest butt? And he's like, yeah. And he goes, well, how's mine? It's okay. And he's like, but is it cute? I don't know. Are we grading on a curve? <laughs> like I love how that pops up. And then in the first meeting, well, the only meeting that Annie has at work with Becky because Becky's the boss of their team. Right. They're having a meeting with two male colleagues. And then one talks about in the 80s, there was a Newsweek article talking about it's easier to be killed by a terrorist than it is to get married over the age of 40, which apparently at the time, that was a big article. Everyone argued about it. They threw in that stat and then everyone actually went, that is absolutely not true. And that was debunked. <laughs> and then straight away, Annie goes, that's not true. That statistic is not true. And Becky goes, that's right. It's not true. But it feels true. And then later yeah. <laughs> on, when Sam and Victor Garber, Greg, are talking about yes. meeting the lady, and he's like, I don't know, like it's just like she's desperate. And then he brings up the terrorist statistic again. And then Susie's like, that is absolutely not true. I really love that. You know, it's just Nora, she just got the kind of stuff that people talked about. And the apple peel thing. Like, I really love yeah. that, that Annie's peeling an apple, and she actually can peel the apple in one long strip. And then later on, Jonah wakes up from a nightmare and goes, I'm starting to forget her. And then Sam goes, she could peel an apple in one long curly strip. And it's like, ah, see, Annie's perfect. I feel like Rob Reiner in that scene early on when he's like, what's, what's the word for that when everything intersects? And uh, the Bermuda Triangle. Sam says the Bermuda Triangle. The word he's searching for is serendipity. Yeah. And yeah, Nora's scripts frequently feature serendipitous dialogue or behavior. And I, I enjoy that, particularly here, because yeah. I think that it helps separate Sam and Annie from the rest of the cast. Mm. They're hearing the same bits of advice or whatever from groups of people who've never met. And in my mind, from a dialogue perspective, it makes these two characters unique, mm. right? They disagree with all of these things they're hearing. Yeah, It's, it's sort of pushing them together in a weird way uh, so that when they meet at the end of the movie, it feels good, found each other. Yeah, I know I love hearing those those lines repeated over and over yeah. throughout this one. Yeah, and one funny, it's just a random thing, but it reminded me of that meeting at work. Annie walks in and then one guy's going, this man sells the greatest soup you've ever eaten and he's the meanest man in America. I feel very strongly about this, Becky. It's not just about the soup, which I always remember that line because I remembered there's a Seinfeld episode called The yes. Soup Nazi, which is about this guy who's really mean. And if he doesn't like you, he won't give you soup. That was an episode in 1995, but Nora mentioned it first. And he was actually based on a real man, Al Yagener, who actually owned Soup Kitchen International in New York. And apparently he was really mean. If he didn't like the look of you, you didn't get any soup. If you picked a soup that he didn't think you should have, you didn't get it. And then Delia was saying that actually she and Nora ordered some soup from there once she went. It was a very traumatizing experience. He was very angry. But I just think that's, that's like a funny thing that that popped up again. So I feel like, I don't know, maybe the Seinfeld episode was inspired by this. I had forgotten that there was a real soup Nazi, like that there was a guy that that character was based on. So when I heard him come up in this, mm -hmm. like my first thought was, oh, like the Seinfeld soup Nazi. And then like, yeah. I still just didn't put it together that they were based on the same person. Yes. <laughs> so thank you for reminding me. Yes. But yeah, talking about the pecs and a cute butt thing before, I really like that scene between Sam and Jay when they're at lunch and he's talking about he wants to get back out there and then Jay's like, so, you know, what do you need to know? And he was like, when were you last out there? And he's like, uh, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and he's like, first thing you should know, women also want to pay for dinner. And he's like, I couldn't have a woman pay for dinner. And he goes, wow, they'll throw a parade in your honor. <laughs> 
And then he talks about tiramisu and he goes, what's that? And he's like, well, you'll find out. And he's like, but if some woman wants me to do it to her and I don't know what it is, no, it's fine. You'll find out. You'll love it. (laughs) Yeah, I love their relationship here. I mean, this is straight up Harry. This is Harry Burns. Like, it becomes abundantly clear if you didn't already know that Harry was sort of based on Rob Reiner because everything he's saying here is like something Harry would say. Mm. And so I love seeing their friendship play out because it's so much fun. Yeah, and how they just kind of razz on each other and he's teasing her. But then he goes, why don't you ring the decorator, Victoria? And he's like, but I can't just ring her. What do I do? And he's like, well, no, say we could look at swatches. Think Cary Grant. And he's like, what? So Gunga Din. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, look, hey, Gunga Din is not a swatch kind of movie. I'm, I'm not saying Gunga Din, but I'm going like Cary Grant. And he's, you know, let's look at some swatches. And he's like, I can't do that. And I love how he does the impression. And he goes, hello, Diane, take a look at these swatches. That is one of the best Cary Grant impressions I've ever heard. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Just, it's a throwaway line and it didn't even have to be a good impression. Yes. But Rob Reiner's just so adept at it that mm. I laugh out loud every time I hear that line. <laughs> yeah. I love that that's Sam's frame of reference for Cary Grant. Gunga Din. Yeah, we're not going Touch of Mink, Philadelphia Story. Why is he not saying that? Why is he not saying an affair to remember? <laughs> even His Girl Friday. Come on. Yeah, anything. My favorite wife. Oh, God. That's so funny. I don't know. I could see Cary Grant talking about swatches and carrying it up. He probably could have called about anything and people would have just responded to whatever he wanted them to come and have a look at. (laughs) It was too suave for his own good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and just like a Tom Hanks line delivery that I love. I love when he's getting ready for his date and Jonah's like, I want this one. I want Annie. And he's like, okay, where's Baltimore? And he's like, let me show you on a map. Because this movie, <laughs> yeah. there's just maps everywhere. You get actual maps. The opening credits yeah. has a map. It's very map-centric. I think because there's a lot of... There's a lot of distance. Cities in play. There's a lot of distance. But I love that he goes, oh, the things they're not teaching you at school worries me. Because he doesn't <laughs> know where things are on a map. But then he goes, where is Seattle? And he's like, here. And he goes, and where is Baltimore? I love how he says that. And then he goes, wow, there's Baltimore. And he's like, see? And then he shuts the map and's like, okay, well, that's done. I'm off on my date. <laughs> Jonah also only knows that Oklahoma is somewhere in the middle. His geography is awful. <laughs> but yeah, the fact that she loves baseball and Jonah's like, she's the one. I want this one. Jonah sees the signs. And then I love the baby's mother, Clarice. Okay, yeah. I had a note about Clarice. She has, what, one line, a one word line? Yeah. She says very little, but she doesn't really need to, does she? Because her wardrobe does all the work. Yes. Yeah. Clarice is like this perfect weirdo teenage babysitter (laughs) that like your child would probably love yes because she's just like chilling out on the couch nora wanted a babysitter character she wanted someone who's a bit like shelly duvall had that kind of energy okay yeah and actually amanda ma is the person who played clarice she wasn't an actress i think she was a waitress that nora saw somewhere and then went i want you in this movie you're exactly what i'm looking for so I'd, yeah i'd probably assume that clarice but maybe she's wearing her own clothes i would not be surprised man did they nail that casting she yeah. is i'm just so curious about that character and yeah. she doesn't say anything i love that she's so vague because then he's like clarice did you move your car and she's like huh and then the rest of the time, Clarice is just wandering around with like a pants that are a bit short, probably because she's yeah, she's kind of spacey, kind of schlubbing around. And then she's like, "Jonah," that's like the one thing she says because clearly Jonah's gone missing, but she's not really <laughs> helping oh, that much. Man. But yeah, I promised you a beef with the production designer, and here we go. We're going to talk about it. 
So yes, as with the last movie, Nora was very specific about details. And as the director, that was her right to be specific about details and have people follow through on them. But as with the production designer on This Is My Life that got fired, the production designer on this, once again, it was those sort of things of Nora going, I want this, and them not really doing that because they, I don't know, felt that their idea was better or they just didn't really want to, I don't know, I don't know, just didn't want to do what she said. Maybe it's a working with a female director thing that I'm sure a lot of people weren't used to because there weren't a lot of female directors working at the time. There still aren't, but maybe it was that sort of thing of going, there's a lady telling me what to do. Don't really like that. I don't know. Just guessing here. But yes, their first disagreement happened about the fairy lights on one of the boats that goes past. So it's oh, the Christmas yep. Eve. There's, there's that boat going past and it's covered in twinkly light. It looks very effective. It looks very pretty on the water. Nora wanted it to look magical, fairy lights, twinkly. But first of all, there weren't enough lights on it. So she went, it barely looks like anything. It's not going to show up. It's not twinkly enough. I want more lights. So then he put a couple more on. It still wasn't enough. Eventually they got to the amount of twinkly lights, but I think it was kind of just a, instead of just going, okay, you want more? I'll do tons more. They weren't gelling. I would love to know what like the director note was on that because I feel like if it was not enough the first time, I would have just been like, all right. Yeah, I'll throw like 15 million lights on it. Griswold Christmas would yes. be the note, you know, just lights yeah, everywhere. Yeah, I think that's the amount of twinkly lights that you wanted and it just wasn't happening. So then the relationship started to break down. Then on one of the sets, I think it was in Annie's house, Nora wanted the walls to be a certain color but the production designer painted them a different color. And then she went, but I wanted it to be this color. And he went, well, I think it should be this color. So then they had a very big argument about that. Eventually, the film was getting close to wrapping, but I think then there was an argument about a table or furniture or something that eventually he was fired. They hired a different production designer to finish out the film. So as great as this casting is, you know, like in all of her movies... They got some really bad production designers. Um, I shouldn't say bad production designers, but like mm. not great collaborators. Yeah. Having worked as a graphic designer for a long time, sometimes you just go, it would be lovely if someone would actually just let me decide something and defer to my expertise right. about it. But you also have to collaborate and maybe this would look better in a different font and a different color. But if they don't want that, I'm not going to waste my time arguing with them about it. I'll do it. I'll make it look as good as it can, even if I don't agree with how it looks. But there's so many other things to deal with in a day. Do you really <laughs> want to keep arguing with someone about the number of fairy lights that you don't want to put on a boat? Like I'm reminded that there's a scene in, in the money pit. You mentioned the money pit earlier where one of the contractors is like spraying this one hallway bright blue. Tom Hanks walks through it and he's like, hey, you wanted this room blue, right? And he's like, no, I want nothing blue. Like, oh, well, now I got to clean out my brushes. That's what I imagine Nora like walking into this room and it's not the color she asked. Mm. It's just funny. I just had that image pop in my mind. Yeah. I think when people talk about female directors, sometimes they go like, oh, that's like, you know, she was arguing with people about stuff and like, but if it was a male director, sure. they probably would have just done yeah. it and people wouldn't go, oh, she was being harsh. You know, if a male director had had to fire a child, people would have just gone, oh, well, you know, he had to because of... Nora is certainly not unique in that she had specific tastes and specific visions. And, you know, there are certainly male directors who are like that. Like, no one would pull that with James Cameron, right? Like, he asks for yeah. this thing to be fuchsia, it's going to be painted fuchsia. Yes. So, probably across the board, if I had to guess, most film sets are not so strict in that way. But Nora being Nora, mm. she wanted... 
what she wanted, and I don't think she should be treated like the devil because of it. Yeah, the paint incident happened after the fairy light incident, so I feel like by that point, the guy probably, you know, figured out that she wanted it how she wanted it. So I feel like he obviously didn't learn anything from the twinkly light incident. Maybe he wanted to get fired. (laughs) Or he really just loved arguing about paint. Maybe he was like that all the time. Maybe it was just difficult. I don't really know. (laughs) Just put more twinkly lights. Thank Kathleen Kelly. Right, that's funny. Yeah, so I think, why don't we head into the New York section of the movie? Yeah, so Annie is headed to New York to meet Walter for Valentine's Day, because that's what they'd planned all along. And then she went, I'll be in New York with Walter. I can fit in meeting someone on the Empire State Building. So she was already going to be there. She was fitting it in. But by this point in the movie, she had been to Seattle. She'd seen Sam. He'd seen her. But then she saw a short curly head lady and thought it was Victoria, but actually it was Susie. Who did not look like a hoe. Who did not look like a hoe. She looked like someone we'd be friends with. <laughs> yes, and Barbara Garrick had extremely long curly hair and it was her crown and glory and she loved her hair, but Nora went, sorry, but Rita Wilson has short hair. Yeah. For the purposes of the plot, the back of your head has to look like the back of her head. So you have to cut your hair. And she was like, oh, do no. I have to? And she went, yes. So she had to cut her hair. She had to have a really short haircut because she had to look like Rita Wilson from the Uh, back. But it's a nice haircut. Yeah, but yes. So Annie assumed that he was head over hills for Victoria because clearly as Susie was his sister, he was very happy to see her and Jonah was happy to see her. And so she gets in her head and goes, all right, fine, I'll go back to Walter and I've been pulling away, but like, I love Walter and I'll marry him. So they're heading to New York. Then after Sam and Jonah have their fight about, you know, fatal attraction... Scaring the shit out of every man in America. <laughs> Which is true. <laughs> that sort of bit. You just watched it for the first I time. I just watched it. I went through like a whole like late 80s, early 90s erotic thriller binge. And I figured like now's yes. the time to watch Fatal Attraction. And I appreciate that joke so much more because that movie is legitimately horrifying. Uh, yes. Almost 36 years <laughs> later. Yeah. So the next day, Sam's going to be going away. Clarice has arrived. But Jonah is nowhere to be found. So because Jessica and Jonah are thick as thieves, Sam says, "Mm, maybe I'll go to Jessica's house because she'll probably know where Jonah is. But unbeknownst to Sam and Jessica's parents, Jessica has booked Jonah a trip to New York. So she went, because people leave you alone on the flat, we'll just say that you're 12, but you're short. So you don't like to talk about it. So people won't think you're eight flying by yourself. So My favorite change in that scene is when he asks how much it costs to fly to New York. Nobody Nobody knows. knows. It changes changes every every day. (laughs) <laughs> I love that Jessica is also eight years old, but her parents leave her in charge of their from home travel agency yep. that she knows how to go in and book tickets. <laughs> so he is on his way to New York on the plane. But yes, I love that bit where they're trying to get information out of Jessica and, you know, she's not really giving in. But I do think it's hilarious that her dad goes, Jessica, this is your father. Yeah. Like she's not going to know who's speaking to her. <laughs> Tell us where he is right this minute. And she goes, N-Y. And Sam goes like, what's that? And the dad goes, no way. And he's like, that would be N-W. And she goes, New York. He's on his way to New York. So then we get a map again. We're getting all these dots of lines of people traveling throughout the country. Sam's leaping on a plane because now all of a sudden he's realized his eight-year-old is flying by himself to New York. So he has to get there. Yep. But yeah, so Jonah arrives. He heads to the Empire State Building. It's still daytime. He's wandering around going like, are you Annie? And all these ladies are like, no. He's hanging out. He's waiting there. Annie's arrived. She and Walter go to dinner. And then the restaurant that they're in has a view of the Empire State Building. Yes. Of course. Because it's a sign. So then 
Sam finally arrives and then we get Annie and Walter at dinner. The minute she sees the Empire State Building, she's like, okay, it is a sign. So she finally tells Walter what's been going on. And like You've Got Mail, they... I was going to say, this is like a test run for You've Got Mail. They're both just laying it out. Walter, clearly he's upset because he loves Annie and he wanted to marry her. But he is very calm about it and he goes, look, Annie, I love you. But let's leave that out of this. I don't want to be someone that you're settling for. I don't want to be someone that anyone settles for. Marriage is hard enough without bringing such low expectations into it. So I love that he's like, yes, I'm disappointed, but I actually want someone to marry me because they love me as much as I love them. And then she goes like, you know, I don't deserve you. And he's like, well, I wouldn't put it that way, but okay. He doesn't hold it against her because I think he'd rather know now. Yeah, it is the most reasonable breakup I have ever seen. Mm. I think this plays more genuine to me than the breakup in You've Got Mail. Although I think I like the breakup scene in You've Got Mail more really just comes down to i Mm. think i prefer the kathleen frank dynamic i think walter shows an incredible amount of grace in this scene nora never wanted to make the person the person was actually with someone you hated but i love the fact that they went how do we take bill pullman extremely charming with amazing hair and make him the wrong guy allergic to everything all they could think of was that he had allergies like, if he was on the radio, women would be queuing up to marry Walter. For sure. If they knew he looked like Bill Pullman, they'd be like, yes, sign me up. How do we make him kind of a dud? I know, he'll have allergies. And I mean, was he the first gluten intolerant person on film? I don't know, because he was talking a lot about he can't have wheat. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Who do you think is the harder sell, Walter or Victoria? Um, We've already sort of discussed that they're both perfectly nice people and they have their thing that makes them quote unquote undesirable for all intents and purposes for the lead characters of this movie. I mean, Victoria is a bit irritating, but I think our opinion straight away is colored by what Jonah thinks about That's it. for so sure. I feel like if we weren't getting Jonah's opinion and we were just getting like an adult's opinion, maybe we'd like Victoria a bit more but straight away because we're on Jonah's side. We want Annie in the picture. We agree with Jonah about how annoying she is, but she's not actually that bad. No, but it really comes down to it's the laugh versus the allergies. I mean, I have celiacs. I can't eat wheat. I have hay fever. I'm allergic to a lot of stuff. So Walter and I would yeah, you guys are be a good fit. Match made in heaven, maybe. <laughs> but yes, I do feel like Walter will find someone. They'll have magic. He'll find another lady that has allergies and she doesn't mind about having an air purifier. <laughs> and I think Victoria will find someone. She's a decorator. She'll probably meet another architect. But oh, probably. Maybe he has a hyena laugh as well and they'll be really happy together. Like, I'm not worried about either of them. No. They'll be fine. They'll find their magic. They'll find their Empire State Building moment. But yeah, so then, like the breakup and you've got mail, but then he's like, so is there someone else for you? He's disappointed, but then he's going, so tell me more about this guy. And it's like, he's very supportive all of a sudden. And then goes like, he could be on the top of the Empire State Building right now. And she's like, oh, I can't go. Then all of a sudden, there's a Uh. heart shape in the lights on the Empire State Building. And then he's like, it's a sign. You have to go. Walter, I have to go. So then she's off. She's running through the streets of New York, not slipping over in the water in her heels, wearing an amazing coat. She has such good coats in this movie. I, I love that blue coat. I love the one she wears to Seattle. Mm. And I love the scarf. Her hair looks whimsical and beautiful. The lighting of the final scene, she's just glowing. Mm-hmm. Meg just looks perfect. Yeah, so then Sam finally makes it to the top of the Empire State Building his exchange with Jonah. I find that really believable. He seems like actually his son's been missing and he's worried and he didn't know he could find him again. And 
What if something happened to you? What if I couldn't get to you? You're my family. You're all I've got. So if I screwed it up for the both of us and then he hugs him and makes this sort of bizarre, which I always laugh, but it seems very genuine. This like weird like honky noise that he's like, oh, oh, oh. Oh, interesting. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> you can just tell it's, he's so overcome by emotion. Then they realize that, you know, Annie's not there. Then they leave. And then it's like, oh my God, she's not going to make it. And then the guard won't let her up because it's closed. And I mean, this movie makes it look like you just get in a lift, you're at the top. Having been to the top of the Empire State Building, you got one lift that goes like half the way. Then you have to wander around and then wait for people not to be at the top. And then you have to take another lift. So it takes like half an hour to get up the top. <laughs> it's movie magic. But she outlines the whole story and he's like, Cara Grant, right? And he's my wife's favorite movie so then yeah an affair to remember saves the day it lets her up to the top of the building and then subtly in the background the score from an affair to remember starts playing she's on the top of the empire state building but they're not there but then she finds jonah's backpack that he conveniently left behind and his teddy bear howard and then they come up and then you can hear them sort of talking going oh where did i leave it and then all of a sudden they meet finally after this whole movie we finally get this bit that we've earned. We're finally rewarded. They're meeting. It's perfect. And it's just complete magic. But also you see it on Sam's side. That's not just Annie going, I was right, it is magic. But he's like, oh, actually, she's perfect as well. That's why it was absolutely necessary to have him see her at the airport earlier in the movie and stop yes, in his tracks. And think she was perfect. And then also have that scene when she flies out to Seattle and like all they get to say is hello to each other. Like if it hadn't been for those yeah. two scenes, then yeah, I wouldn't buy that finale. But you can tell that she's occupied space in his mind ever mm. since he saw her at the uh, airport. So yeah, I buy it for sure. Yeah, I do as well. And they barely say anything together. And then Jonah's like, are you Annie? And she's like, Yes, and then he goes, you're Annie? Like, Sam's like, bloody hell, like, I knew you were this lady that I saw and I thought you were perfect, but the fact that you're actually the letter lady that I thought might be a nut, you're actually this woman that I've been thinking about ever since I saw her, and it all falls into place. And then really all they say to each other is, hi, Sam, it's nice to meet you. And really, that's all they need. And then he goes, we should go, and then he reaches out his hand. They hold hands and it's magic. I love that the last line, she just goes like, Sam, nice to meet you. The Empire State Building door shuts and Jonah's smiling and, and then we zoom out into this very charmingly badly dated CGI Empire State Building spinning around with the hearts and Jimmy Durante in the background. <laughs> it really is just like magic. And I just love that song at the end, like make someone happy. Yeah, the music in this is all quintessential Nora. I thought it was interesting mm -hmm. that it begins with As Time Goes By, which is... You know, of course, for those of us of classic movies, the song from Casablanca, although this is a different uh, recording, but it's, you know, it's the main song from one of the most romantic movies of all time. That's definitely not a coincidence. And we know she loves Casablanca because of When Harry Met Sally. For so. sure. And we also get tracks by Carly Simon and Harry Connick Jr. So, like, yes. she loved specific singers, it seems. Yeah. And then Louis Armstrong... He's on the soundtrack again because yep. there's a ton of his music in When Harry Met Sally. Because, you know, Nat King Cole, there's a whole lot of the favorite kind of old standards that Nora really loved. I always thought that A Wink and a Smile was, it sounds like an old classic song, but it was actually written for this film. Interesting. I didn't know that. And it was actually nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars. Nick Myers, who was the soundtrack supervisor, and he worked on I think, all of her films up until he died, I think. But he always said that 
he picked some of the songs, but usually all of the soundtracks, it was Nora picking all of the music because she had very specific ideas about it. But Mark Shaman did suggest Back in the Saddle again, because everyone thought that was funny as a random song to be playing. Yeah, so, and just one last thing about the Empire State Building in that final scene. If you've been on top of the Empire State Building recently and then rewatched the ending, you might notice that the top of the Empire State Building in Sleepless in Seattle is, is sort of wider than perhaps the actual top of the building is, but that's because it was recreated on a set. See, that's curious too. I would have assumed that like actually shot up there. Yeah, well, the bit that you see Jonah walking around in the daytime, that bit was a zoom shot. The cinematographer Sven Nyquist was up in a helicopter. Apparently Nora was in the helicopter as well, but she hated helicopters and was freaked out, but they filmed the panning shot. But then they tried to get access to the building to do more filming, but the owners said no because they didn't want to miss out on business. So so they had to rebuild it. But I think the cinematographer said it was easier than actually carrying all this rig up to the top of a building. I think it all just worked out better to fake it. Okay. But I mean, the New York skyline that they painted in the background, that looks real. That looks legit, that scene. Really what I would say is it doesn't look windy enough. Because I've been up the top of that. It's very windy. So that, I feel like that's probably the giveaway that it's a set. It's not windy enough. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't been up there myself, I'm ashamed to say. But I believe that it would mm. be incredibly windy. And I, and I wouldn't even think about that uh, watching that scene. So there we go. That's Sleepless in Seattle. Yes. I had a couple uh, just straight notes. I loved that the version of Jingle Bells that Annie is listening to in the car yes. uh, is performed by the New Jersey Kate Mayotte's. That struck a chord with me because well, I'm originally from New Jersey and uh, Cape May, New Jersey is a beautiful little... I don't know if they're real or not, but I love... <laughs> yes. And I love when she's singing... Horses, horses, horses. Horses, horses. The way she sings horses is really weird. Like, it's horses. She can't stop singing it even while she's listening to the call-in mm. show, which is funny. Last thing for me, I loved that New Year's Eve, it's clear that Sam and Jonah hung out and played Monopoly and like waited for the ball to mm. drop. So when I was a kid and I became of an age where I wanted to stay up to midnight on New Year's Eve, my parents would like let me stay up with them. That's what we did. We played Monopoly. Mm. We would order food and like just hang out <laughs> okay. and watch TV. So for me personally, I love that little detail because I did that exact thing when I was Jonah's age. Oh, and one little funny thing is when Annie's listening to the radio again and they're doing a compilation of the best stories on Dr. Marsha Fieldstone. A woman calls in called Desperate in Denver (laughs) and she's talking about you know every time I nearly have an orgasm he gets up to make a sandwich then she goes well why don't you have a sandwich there already so he doesn't get up. Yeah. But the voice of Desperate in Denver is Nora Ephraim. No kidding. I'm gonna go back and watch that (laughs) scene just for that. I didn't catch that. Yeah so that's Nora. Yeah, but the fact that this is Nora's second movie as a director, amazing. And yeah, she might have been like at 90% director powers in This Is My Life, but now she's fully like 100% director Nora. She's there. Yeah. No notes. 10 out of 10. It's the second movie of the Nora Ephron, Meg Ryan rom-com Holy Trinity, which is sort of sad because that means we've still got more films to go, but we've only got one. One more of those, yeah. One more of the Holy Trinity to go. Yes, it had have a slightly interesting journey for our next two films. We've got Mixed Nuts. That's going to be an interesting conversation because that's quite a it's divisive, polarizing yeah. film. 
And then we've got Michael, which I have seen and for a long time I didn't know it was a Nora Ephron film and I know a lot of other people don't know it's a Nora Ephron film. I think because it's a massive departure from her usual style. So that is going to be interesting. But then after that, we get You've Got Mail. This is, uh, yeah, definitely one of the highlights of her career and one of the movies I was most looking forward to talking about when we started this whole project. So I'm glad we finally got to it. And man, we spent quite a bit of time talking about it too. So well, It's one worth delving into all aspects of. You can find us at The Nora Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and on the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. Where can our listeners find you, Dan? You can find me on Twitter at Dan Cologne, Instagram at Dan Cologne. Um, I do another show about Universal Studio monster movies on the Cage Club Podcast Network. That is the, the monsters that made us. Everything can be found at the Cage Club website. Well, you can find me at Shawnee Mead on Twitter and on Letterboxd. Thank you so much for joining us for episode eight of the podcast Around the Corner. Please join us again as we discuss Nora's divisive Christmas film, Mixed Nuts. Thank you for listening and see you then. Thank you for listening to the podcast Around the Corner. You can find us at The Nora Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and on the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Subscribe to the podcast Around the Corner wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you want to send us your thoughts on our show or on Nora, or you just want to say hello, send us an email at thepodcastaroundthecorner at gmail.com. Join us again later in the month for two very special bonus episodes, and then in June as we discuss the 1994 film Mixed Nuts, directed by Nora Ephron, written by Nora Ephron and Delia Ephron, and starring Steve Martin, Rita Wilson, and Madeleine Kahn. The podcast Around the Corner, the Nora Ephron podcast, is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. Our intro theme music is Ain't Misbehavin' by the Underscore Orchestra by a free music archive.